You want to pull out your Bible? Turn to Psalm 133. We're going to continue with this series that we've been doing on the Psalms of Ascent, making our way to Easter Sunday. Just a little review to catch us all up. You remember the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134, were pilgrim songs that Jewish people would sing on their way to worship in Jerusalem. Three times a year, the Israelites would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts of the Lord. You remember those feasts, uh, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. So you are coming with your cousins and your cousins' cousins and your grandparents' cousins, your whole village, your whole clan, loading up, traveling as a caravan down to Jerusalem. That's how we would say it, but they didn't travel down to Jerusalem. They traveled up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem was built on a mountain surrounded by mountains. So unless you lived in that general vicinity, you ascended into Jerusalem. You went up to Jerusalem. That's why these are called the Psalms of Ascents because they sang them as they ascended ascended into Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now the songs have been lost to us, the tunes have been lost to us, but the words remain. So Psalm 133, it says in verse 1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Look back at verse 1. He says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So when you get along with your brothers and sisters, this is not just talking about your biological brothers and sisters, but when you get along with the people of God, it is good and pleasant. Now you fast forward to the New Testament, what does the Bible calls us? It calls us in 1 Peter chapter 2, spiritual stones which are being built together into a spiritual house. Ephesians chapter 2 refers to us as the household of faith. And so that's why we talk about our church as the house, because that's what the scripture says, that we are a house, and in that house is a family. Now, I don't know if you've been thinking about your family lately. This started me thinking about my family. I uh, grew up in Missouri. All of my family lived right there with just an arm's reach of each other. So we had very specific traditions because there was no traveling. There was no, you know, I can come for Thanksgiving, but we're not coming for Christmas. Or I'm going to skip Thanksgiving. I'm going to come to Christmas. No, everyone was a part of everything because we were all right there. And so we had uh, some very firm Christmas morning traditions. I know it's not Christmas, but I kind of miss it already. I'm looking forward to it. So I thought I would bring it back tonight. Uh, Christmas morning, we would wake up at my house, just the four of us. We would do the presents thing there. Then we would go to my grandparents, do the presents thing there with my aunts and uncles and my first cousins. And, and then we would go later in the afternoon to eat lunch at my great aunt's house. And this was everybody. This was like everybody's friends and family and cousins. There were my first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, even fifth cousins would show up at this house. But it was a tiny little house. And so we'd be all jammed in there together. And I'm, I'm a little kid. It was my least favorite 
Christmas tradition because there were no other kids my age. Uh, there was nothing fun to do in this house. It was the house of my, house of my grace aunt, so, great aunt, so it wasn't like she had a lot of toys or cool stuff going on at her house. There weren't any rooms to play in. She didn't have a front yard, didn't really have a backyard. It was a busy street out front. And so I would just have to sit there and listen to adult conversations, which is important to remember as an adult that children can actually hear your conversations and they're not as dumb as we think they are. And so I was listening to some pretty grown-up conversations. But that was every Christmas morning uh, or Christmas afternoon, we would get together at my great aunt's house and I started thinking about some of the characters that were there and then I started thinking about some of the characters in your family. You know, every family kind of has the same cast of characters, different places, but kind of all the same. So I thought we'd run through them, uh, you know, tonight. Uh, there, you have a grandfather figure in your family. You know, even if your grandfather has passed away, there's a grandfather figure in your family. He's the patriarch. You know, he's the one person at the family reunion who knows everybody. You know, when you go to a family reunion, you know like 25% of the people, and it's kind of awkward because you knew, should know some of them better. And it's never a good sign when you have to ask somebody the name of one of your family members. But that happens to all of us. But your grandfather figure, he knows everybody. He was there when they were all born. He was the originator of all the stories. Everybody's got one of him. The church has, you know, people like that who are, who are mature, who are wise, who are measured. They're slow to speak, but when they speak, they speak with great wisdom. And they're people that you listen to. Everybody has a great aunt in their family, you know, the hostess, the person that's making sure that you have a, a full drink and you have a full plate. Not just that you have food on your plate, but that your plate is overflowing, you know, and, and she's offended when your plate is not overflowing because she was the cook and she feels personally attached to the enjoyment of the food. Food. And then you have the first cousins at any family gathering. The first cousins are the worst, man, because the first cousins feel like they're the insiders on everything. You know what I'm talking about? They get together and they're like, you remember the time when we were at granny's house and we lit stuff on fire and ha ha and mom and dad had to come and get us. And you're like, who's mom and dad? Who's granny? She passed away before I got there. First cousins are the worst because they think that everybody's gathered around to hear them. The problem is, is that we're all somebody's first cousins. But at the family reunion, you've got those people who are the insiders. They know all the traditions. They know all the stories. They were there. You got your great uncle. And your great uncle is grumpy and curses a lot. You have to excuse him and explain him to your children on the way home. You know, that's what Uncle Ted said. But um, we don't know why he did that. He's kind of crazy. And don't do that. Everything that he just did, don't do that. Everybody's got somebody like that in their family. Even churches have those people. Some of you right now are grumpy and you cursed a lot already today. You know, don't, you don't tell anybody, but we all know it's true. Everybody has somebody like that in their family. And every church has got people like that, grumpy people who curse a lot. Uh, you have your brother-in-law. You know, the brother-in-law is the person who wouldn't go to the reunion, to the gathering on their own, but they have a good time when they get there. You know, it's always an in-law. It's, it's, you know, because the law forced you to go to the family reunion. The churches have those people too. It's usually men. You know, in fact, some of you men are here tonight because your wife or the female in your life, she made sure that you were here. Because in your home, she is the stirrer of faith. And it's not that you don't have a good time when you get here. You like it and you believe and you have genuine faith in Jesus. But if your wife wasn't around to be the stir in your family to remind everybody and hold the standard, you might have not come tonight. It shouldn't be that way, by the way. Men, you shouldn't have to be dragged to church. That's not the way that God ordered your home. 
you should be the one leading your family to the house of God. Or at least competing with your wife in eagerness to be here. But that's not always the reality, is it? Some of us are here because somebody made us come or influenced us to come or said that our life would be miserable if we didn't come. You have the couple at every family gathering who is having marital problems, but you're not supposed to know about that, but they came together. And so you kind of want to say something. You want to talk to them about it. You want to encourage them, but you're not really supposed to know. So you don't say anything because you, you're not supposed to know. Churches have those people too. You have your second cousin who was diagnosed with cancer since the last time you saw her. Again, you weren't there when the diagnosis happened. It's been a while, so you don't know, should I say something, should I not say something? I feel kind of weird. I want to let her know that I'm praying for her, but you know, I want to ask about how it's going, but I don't know if I should bring it up, and so we usually don't. You, know, you have your, your uncles. you got that one uncle who lights up the room. They're the center of attention. they got the best stories. they got crazy stories, but their life is like a total train wreck. You know what I'm talking about? In fact, they just got out of prison. Listen, I think if you don't know somebody or relate to somebody who's just getting out of prison, your family's not that interesting. You know, everybody should be connected to somebody like that. Hopefully it's not your immediate family or it's not you. But if it is you, praise God, everybody's got somebody in their family who's been to prison. And every church has got people who have been to prison. They have the best stories, those uncles who light up the room, but their life is a mess. You've also got that other uncle who's totally awesome, super happy, super friendly, but really shallow. Just always happy, always in a good mood, but never talks about anything serious. Always asking you the same questions, always talking about the same things, you know. Hey, how's it been the last year? Oh, it's been good. Work's good. Family's good. Life's good. My hobby's good. Golf's good. Everything is good. The churches have those people too. Really happy to be here. Really happy to see people but just kind of shallow, not a lot of depth underneath that. You have your third cousin, who's the prodigal. They haven't been at the last few Christmases, but now they're back. You're not exactly sure what happened, some kind of family dysfunction. Somebody said something, and they got mad and hadn't been around, but now they've come back. You've got that awesome aunt. You only see her once a year, but she's totally awesome. She's the only person at the family gathering uh, that will sit down with you, look you in the eye, and is genuinely interested in what's going on with you. You love seeing her. She builds you up. She encourages you, but you don't get to see her that often. You have that successful cousin. They uh, roll up in their awesome trucks and nice cars, and they're clean, right? Don't people with clean cars just annoy the heck out of you? You know, just they're clean. Everything's spotless. Everything's been washed. They're successful in business, and and on the surface, they look like they have a great life. But then when you hear them tell the stories, you can kind of see through the exterior and know that their life is just as hard as your life. Just has kind of a prettier finish on it. Churches like that too. In fact, sometimes when we come to church, we look at other people and we think, man, they have everything. They, their life is so great. It's so easy. And they feel so connected. And I wish my life was like that. But when you actually get to know people... You get to see through that exterior and you know that their life is just as hard as your life, just a different set of circumstances. You have that new boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance at every family gathering. You know, they're coming with somebody and they feel totally awkward because they feel like they've stepped into something that they don't know if they were truly invited to. Isn't that the worst? I remember the very first time I came to Christmas at Amanda's house, I got the feeling, the very distinct feeling, 
holy cow, I don't think I should be here right now. I think it's too soon. I think they're mad at me for coming. You know, I, I'm, I just, you just get all up in your brain because you're not sure that you're invited. So it's so awkward to be at your very first family gathering as a future something or as a boyfriend or girlfriend or maybe as something. And maybe that's the way you feel tonight. You came as a friend. Somebody invited you. And you're looking around and you don't know the traditions and you don't know the stories and, and you don't know what comes next and you don't know the songs and you don't even know where the places in the Bible uh, are. And you're like, do these people want me here? I don't feel like I'm connected here. And that's great. All of us have felt like that. That's where everybody starts. And it's always awkward at first. But if you keep sticking around, you eventually become part of the family. And so if it is your first or second time and you feel totally awkward here, like this is not your family, just give it time. And eventually it will feel like your family. And then there's you. And of course, you're the only normal one. Every family has people like that. And we could go on and on and on and on. And churches have people like that too. Churches are filled with people who are awesome, awkward, or awful. Because every family is filled with people who are awesome, awkward, and awful. And we all take turns being each type of person. All of us have been the awesome person at church, bringing a lot of life, bringing a lot of faith, uh, volunteering, serving, feeling like you're in the flow. And then all of us have taken a turn being the awful person at church. All of us have hurt somebody. We let something slip out of our mouth. We didn't respond in the right way. All of us take a turn being that person. And all of us have been affected by that kind of person. That's why when people tell me, you know, hey, I don't want to come to church or I can't be a part of church because I was hurt by the church. I'm like, yeah, me too. I'm a pastor. I get hurt by the church all the time. Like, that's part of the job. In fact, if people tell me that they're a part of the church and they've not been hurt by the church, I don't believe that they're actually a part of the church. Being hurt by the church is like a rite of passage for a believer in Jesus. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it real. Because in every family, it's either awesome awkward or awful and we take turns being all three and so everybody is going to get their feelings hurt there's going to be misunderstanding there's going to be times where you're like I don't know why we do it that way I don't know why they're like that it's just part of being in a family and we are a household of faith we are the house of God and in that house is a family and so unity sometimes is hard it's like what I tell couples who are getting married marriage is unbelievable in a million different ways, but it's also hard. And the reason it's hard is because you're taking two very selfish people and you're making them share one life and one space. So anytime you're taking two selfish people and putting them together like that, it's gonna be hard because you don't stop being selfish the moment you say, I do, and you don't stop being selfish the moment that you say yes to Jesus and say yes to a specific family of faith. And I don't either. When you put 1,200 selfish people together sharing the same space, sometimes it's not going to go well. But if we can figure out a way to have unity, the Bible says it is good and it is pleasing. And then look what he says next in verse 2 of Psalm 133. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Can you imagine singing that song? Imagine coming next week and we have a song about a beard. 
I mean, let's just call it like it is. That's a pretty awkward song. I mean, we're in full worship, and one song is about Jesus, and the next song is about some guy's beard. It's going to be weird, and you're probably not going to come back the next week. But that's the song that they're singing. They're about singing about Aaron's beard. Now, who is Aaron? Aaron is the very first high priest of Israel. He was Moses' brother. You can read about his story in the way that he was anointed, because that's what this passage of Scripture is talking about in Exodus and Leviticus, because Aaron was chosen by God to represent Israel in the house of God, in the tabernacle of God. And he would go and he would represent the people and he would make sacrifices on their behalf. And when God put him aside with this role, he, he had him anointed. And so Moses mixed these, these herbs and these spices and these oils together the way that God had prescribed. And he pours it on top of Aaron's head and you can just see it just the way this psalm has described it. It's running down his head first and his hair and now down his beard and now down his robe. All this anointing oil. And the psalmist is using this picture of Aaron, this one anointed by God, to talk about unity. Because there was one day a year, a day of atonement, when all of Israel was unified above all other days. Because you remember, we live on this side of Jesus. And living on this side of Jesus is way easier than living on the other side of Jesus. But these Israelites, they were the people of God in the the same way that we are the people of God. But they lived before Jesus, but they lived with God as the people of God. And you remember, God is holy and he's unusually unique and there's no one like him and he can't dwell with sin. But the Israelites, like you and I, they were sinners. Thankfully, Jesus has made a once and for all sacrifice for us. But before Jesus, God had prescribed a way for their sins to be taken away through these sacrifices of animals. And on one day a year, Aaron would go into the tabernacle, the house of God, and he would make a sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of all the people of Israel. And on that day, if you were an Israelite, you didn't go to work, you didn't work in your yard. You didn't run errands. You just sat together as a family and you remembered at that moment Aaron was representing you and all of your people in the house of God. It was a day of unity above all other days. And so the psalmist is saying this one who was anointed by God for a specific purpose, he is a picture of unity. My favorite thing about our church is that we have people who want to get some things done in Jesus' name. All during the week, we have hundreds of people, hundreds of you out there accomplishing things, ministering to people, talking about Jesus to people, helping the poor, helping the homeless, helping single moms, blessing the widows, opening your home to orphans, just people all over the city. And so our church is doing so much, not because our church is doing so much, but because the people of our church is doing so, do, are doing so much. I love that. But this is a warning for us today. That it's not enough to just know what God wants from you and for you to go and do it. If there's not unity with the church, then there's no anointing to get things done. That what you and I want to accomplish for Christ and in His name has everything to do with how things are going in your household of faith. I want you to turn and see how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12.
This is what he says in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The Apostle Paul, he's writing this letter, and if you want something to do for an hour, just start at the beginning of 1 Corinthians and just read it all the way through, and you'll see that one of the primary purposes of this letter is Paul is writing to a church that's not getting along. And so in the, midst of, in the midst of writing to this church that's not getting along, he, he says, think about your body, like your physical body. Think about how your body, it's one body. You don't have two bodies or three bodies. It's one body, but you have all these different parts. So think about your body. Right now you have a brain. I'm sure it's huge and awesome and brilliant. That's what your mom told you. And I'm affirming that tonight. And your brain right now, it's unbelievable, is sending hundreds of thousands of impulses at the same time to tell your body what to do. When you need to adjust in your seat, when you need to move your foot, move your hand, when you need to move your eyes, when you, you need your ears to listen, it's telling your heart to beat, it's telling your lungs to breathe. That's all happening right now. Because your brain, your head is telling your body what to do. And how does the scripture refer to Jesus? As the head of the church. He's constantly sending signals to us. Saying, this is what I want from you. Taking the word of God and applying it in very specific ways to you. And if I ask you right now, what is it in this season of your life that God wants you to accomplish in his name? What is the calling that he has placed in your hands in this window? Hopefully you have an answer. Maybe one or two things, but hopefully you have something right now. There's a temptation in the church to find out what that is that God is asking from you. And then to elevate that above all the other impulse and all the other directives that are coming from God. It's like your body parts, you know, your hand coming alive saying, I'm the hand and I'm the king of all the body parts because the hand, man, if you don't have a hand, life's gonna be really hard. The hand is doing everything. The hand's picking stuff up. The hand's picking stuff up to put stuff in the mouth. Imagine if you didn't have a hand and how would you eat? The hand is saying, I'm the hand and everything revolves around me. I make your life better. I make your life easier. Then your foot's like, no way. I'm the feet and the feet hold you up. The feet, if you don't have feet, you can't stand. And then your knees are like, hey, who are you, feet? I'm the knees. And if you want to move anywhere, then you got to have me because otherwise you're just a bunch of feet and legs and you got to stand in a straight line all the time. No, the knees are where it's at. And your elbow's like, no, the elbow. The elbow's actually above the, the hand. The 
hand, uh, you know, I'm closer to the brain, the head than you are. So that means everything that you get is running through me. I'm the filter to you hand. I'm the most important part. And then your, your heart's, you know, stepping up into the moment and say, hello, I'm circulating all the blood in your body at all times. Hand, you'd fall apart. Literally hand, if it weren't for me pumping blood, you, your fingers would fall off and then you wouldn't be much of a hand. And, and then your lungs are like, what about me? I'm taking in oxygen all the time, in and out, in and out, saving your life over and over and over again. See, that's what happens when you and I get our calling, our God-given passion to get something done in Jesus' name, and we lift it up and forget about everybody else's calling. But the way it should work is that you are giving everything that you have to what God is asking you to do. But you're still completely invested in what God is asking the person sitting next to you to do. The hand isn't saying, I'm the hand at the expense of the foot, but I'm the hand for the foot. And I'm the foot for the hand. And I'm the heart for the elbow. And I'm the elbow for the knee. That's the way our calling should be. You know, I'm the pastor of this church. And man, I beg God that my heart is not that I'm the pastor and so all the other body parts are for me. But I'm the pastor for you. I'm going to live out my calling so that you can live out your calling. That I'm not the body part that's lifted up above all the body parts, but no, I'm my calling so that you can do your calling and your calling is so that the person sitting next to you can do their calling. Amanda and I are living this right now and it's beautiful. Uh, we took a van tour. Um, I've told you before that right now, three or four months, we're just leaning into this idea that there are 27 million slaves in the world right now. 27 million, that's not a fictionalized number, that's not an exaggerated number, that's not a redefining what it means to be a slave. That means 27 million people right now are being forced to work against their will with coercion of force. And they're slaves in every way. Many of them, many of them, right now in our city limits here in Houston, Texas. In fact, we heard not too long ago that one-third of all the people who will be enslaved in America come through our city. And so we took a van tour with a partner organization here in our city. Many of you have signed up to do that next Saturday. Um, go around to see these places with your own eyes where these things are happening in our own city. And so we did that about a month ago, and man, Amanda's heart was just moved by it. And so she started signing up to do all these crazy things. This, this a calling from God just dropped in her lap and she's walking it out. So she's going to these like super late night prayer meetings in these amazing parts of town where stuff is happening all around with these amazing people who have gathered together. So she's leaving our house on a Friday night like at 9.30. She's like, well, I'm going off to pray in Jesus' name that he would set some people free. I'm like, man, God bless you that I married you. I married so way over my head. But I gotta be at home at 9.30 on Friday night because we have children and I gotta watch them. But imagine if I were like, you know what, Amanda, that's, that's not my call, that's your call. That's your thing. You feel all the wind and momentum to do that. You know, I feel a lot of wind and momentum to sit in front of the TV and eat donuts. That's kind of what I feel. 
So you got to find something to do with your kids and my kids, but your kids, because that's your calling. That's not my calling. No. Because we're individual parts, but we're accountable to the whole body. So ask yourself two questions. Do you know what your calling is? Do you know what it is that God is asking you to play? What part are you right now? And then ask yourself, do you know anybody else's part? And are you invested in the mission, not just of the one part, but of the whole family? Because that's what family does. And that's what it means to live in unity. And here's why it matters. Look over just one verse or one chapter to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here's why you and I want to be invested in what other people are doing. Because verse one starts like this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging symbol. What he's saying is, listen, if you can pray powerful prayers in English or you can pray powerful prayers of the Spirit in a heavenly language that's not known by us, which you can read about in uh, chapter 14, he's going to explain what that means. If you can pray supernaturally or you can pray naturally, but if you don't love, it's just noise. It's not prayer, it's just noise. Verse two, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Now, I don't know how your week was this week. I don't know if any of you looked at a piece of geography. We don't have very many mountains here, but if you looked at a giant piece of dirt here in Houston that was all piled up for road construction and you said, in Jesus' name, I want you to move right now. And in that, if that happened to you, I don't know, maybe it did. If it did, just let me know because you can preach next week because I've not yet been able to move mountains or even piles of dirt here in the city, just not been able to muster up enough faith, I guess. But Paul is saying, even if you could, even if you could go to the Rocky Mountains and say to one of the peaks, I want you to move in Jesus' name. And it did. Man, I'd be bragging about that forever. But Paul says, even if you're able to do that, if you don't have love, it's unimpressive. I mean, look at the other things he lists. He says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries, I mean, imagine how amazing it would be if you just knew in every moment, this is what God is saying to you. You could look at somebody across the table and say, this is what message that God has for you. Wouldn't you love to be able to do that? Wouldn't you love to be able to say to your neighbor in a way to minister to them, hey, I think this is what God is saying to you. And they, they hear it and they just unlock because that was in fact what God was saying to them. That would be unbelievable. Or if you're able to understand all the mysteries, if you're able to know the distinct order in the way the world's going to end or Jesus is going to come back and you know all the signs of the times and all, everything that's going to happen, wouldn't that be unbelievable knowledge? But Paul says, without love, it's useless. Verse three, and if I give all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. I love this because he talks to the hyper-spiritual people, you know, the prayers. And then he's talking about the people with power, 
And then he gets to those who love to do and love to serve. He says, if you give everything you have away, I mean, just think about what that would be like right now. I don't know the number that's in your bank account. Hopefully you have at least a ballpark figure of what's going on in there. This, this picture, taking all that money, every dime, writing a check and just giving it to somebody. Then going home, putting your house up for sale, selling it, and then giving all that money away. Going into your closet, picking out two outfits and giving all the rest that fills your closet away. Finding one pair of shoes and all those shoes that are hidden under the piles of clothes in your closet, giving all those away too. Imagine doing that. I know some of us are like, please, God, don't let that be my calling. Please don't let that be my calling. And then Paul takes it even a step further. And he says, and if I'm even burned at the stake, if I give my body to be burned, meaning if I take this faith in Jesus all the way where it cost me my life, which it did cost him his life. These are not idle sentences from this man. But I don't love. I gain nothing. So here's the terrible fear is that you and I, we can be hyper-spiritual. We can be unusually giving unusually sacrificing. But if you don't have love for the people around you, it's nothing. It is unimpressive to heaven. See, how we treat one another and feel one another is more important to God than it usually is to us. Now go back to Psalm 133. We'll look at the last verse and This is where we'll land this morning or this evening. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. It's a picture of this mountain, which is in modern day Syria, just north of Israel. You can see this mountain, Mount Hermon, from 120 miles away. It has such a high elevation that even in the dry and arid climate of the Holy Land, there's snow on it two-thirds of the year. And that snow and runoff from the dew comes down and it gives life to the valleys that surround it. And it even combines with some springs in that general vicinity to form the Jordan River. Even if you're new to the Bible, you've heard of the Jordan River. It runs through Israel and it runs through the Scripture. A lot of important things are happening in the Jordan River. Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River. John the Baptist baptizes in the Jordan River. The Israelites cross over the Jordan River to get into the Promised Land. And they would have walked alongside the Jordan River as they sang these songs of ascent. And it gives life to all of Israel, the Jordan River. And so he compares our unity to this life-giving runoff from this mountain. See, unity is good and pleasing, not just to those of us inside of the unity. It's good and pleasing to those outside the unity. 
That's why you want to have unity in your marriage because it's not just good for the husband and wife, it's good for the kids. It's good for the neighbors for you to be unified in your marriage. It's good for your mom and dad for you to be unified in your marriage. Unity is good, not just for those on the inside. Jesus says the same thing. I want you to turn real quickly to John chapter 17. Jesus is praying in between the Last Supper where he lifts up the bread representing his broken body and lifts up the cup representing his shed blood. So in between that and the Garden of Gethsemane where he'll be arrested and betrayed, he prays this prayer. And so this is him praying in verse 11. He says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Then skip ahead to verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's talking about us tonight. Because the disciples go out and they start telling people about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and return. And they started telling people, and they started telling people, and they started telling people, and they started telling people. And generations and generations and generations later, here we are. So he's praying this for us. That they may all be one, verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. So Jesus says, over and over again here, praying that God would make us one. And the reason he gives is so interesting to me. Because he doesn't say, make them one, because if they're one, the church would be healthier, the church would function better, the church could get some things done better. He doesn't say, make them one, because it will make the church attractive on the outside, that people would look at the church and go, oh, look how they're getting along and how they love one another, and and nobody else in the world gets along, and politics, conflict, all that. I want to be a part of the church because they get along. That's not the reason that he gives for us to have unity. The reason he gives over and over again is so that the world will know that God sent Jesus. So our unity is a reflection of the Father sending Jesus. Why? Because he says in verse 11, I'm no longer here. Because our culture and our communities, they don't get to lay their eyes on Jesus. But they can lay their eyes on the church. And if we are working as one body, when they lay their eyes on the church, they're going to see through the church into Jesus. I think about how many times in my life, you know, I've been not getting along with somebody that I go to church with. Just having some conflict there. And I have unknowingly poorly reflected Jesus. I think about all the times I've been at lunch across the table from somebody and started talking about how awesome our church is. Maybe at the expense of some other church that don't agree with or don't necessarily line up with or wouldn't do things their way. And the person across the table from me, like, totally was into it. 
But what I wasn't thinking about is maybe right behind me was somebody who doesn't know Jesus and doesn't know the scripture and doesn't have any experience. And while I was talking to home base, the person behind me got a poor reflection of Jesus. Like I can't get along with other followers of Jesus in this city. Because our unity is not just for us. It's not just good and pleasing to us. It reflects Jesus in the world. That's what he prayed. That's what he requested from his father hours before he gave up his life. That we would be one. So how do you do that? Back to 1 Corinthians 13. What's the take home tonight? Is it, you know, let's hold hands more. We do that at the end and that's kind of weird. I mean, should we write each other notes of encouragement? Should there be a big bowl of notes of encouragement when you walk in? You can pull one out. Should we text each other more? What do we do to be one? We sing Kumbaya. Kumbaya gets hated on a lot. Maybe we should bring it back. Poor Kumbaya. The song everybody loves to hate. No, this is the way forward. Love is patient and kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. That's where we start. When when I start doing that, and you start doing that, unity happens. And when unity happens in the family of God, people see Jesus. And there's nothing better than seeing Jesus. Father, we pray that you would make us one. We say the same prayer as Jesus today. God, I pray all of us would sacrifice our own way, our own preferences to lift up and build up and encourage somebody else. God, I pray you would put one eye on our calling and one eye on somebody else's calling so that we wouldn't be the hand for the hand, but we would be the hand for the foot and the foot for the heart and the heart for the lungs. Yeah, do that miracle in us, Father.